Hello, I'm Sophia and I'm joined by Tess, Elisa and Joe and our wonderful facilitator David and we are working for the Prospero project which is a project financed by the European Research Council to investigate post-growth. So this is not a term which comes up every day and it sits amongst a whole landscape of complex concepts like sustainability, green growth, circular economy, innovation, development etc. And we're making this podcast to unpack some of these and to ask what post-growth means and to explain why it's important. So our podcast will be a series of conversations lasting about half an hour, more or less, um, each taking a topical news piece and interrogating how it relates to our work. I need to breathe. (laughs) Uh, So it's our aim today to present through a discussion the values, themes and ideas associated to both growth and post-growth. And for our first session, thanks to Elisa's suggestion, we are starting with recent news from the UK, which is the economic agenda set out by Liz Truss, who's the new Prime Minister of Britain, in her speech (laughs) at the Conservative Party conference uh, at the start of October, where she stated, I have three priorities for our economy, growth, growth and growth. So growth was very obviously at the core of her agenda, and she used this word more than 24 times in her speech playing also to the body politic by making the British economy out to be a feeble body, claiming, for example, that for too long our economy has not grown as strongly as it should have done. And she says that she is going to create a growing economy and a better future. So Trust stated that she could ensure growth by cutting taxes on the super rich to encourage investment, amongst other things, and that this would put up a sign that Britain is open for business. In part of her speech, she blamed the weakness of Britain's economy on those who tried to stop growth and stated that she would not allow the anti-growth coalition to hold us back. But this faced quite bad backlash in no small part because she blamed the economic problems in the UK on anti-growthers. And our project would probably be counted amongst this anti-growth coalition. So today we're going to talk a bit more about this piece and its reception and to flesh out a bit more why growth is not necessarily good. So maybe we can start with that. Why did Liz Truss emphasise growth, guys? <laughs> I mean, her speech is, like, so horrible. Like, every word that she... Like, every time she opens her mouth, more bullshit comes out of her mouth. <laughs> Sorry. Um, this podcast is not beeped. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm talking as a very professional academic. But it's true. And, I mean, like, her whole thing of, like, economic growth and I think later looking at, like, her, like, the Conservatives' party program around, like, the economy, like, her whole thing is that, you know, growth is natural for the wealthy to to get wealthier and, like, that's her, her whole agenda rather than looking at, like, for her even, like, growth doesn't actually, like, lead to equity. Like, she's not interested in it, right? Like, she positions everything in the economy right now, which is in complete shambles, and the UK is an absolute mess at the moment with people getting poorer and poorer and queuing up for food banks and everything. And, like, the wealth gap increasing more and more over the last years. And right now, she positions growth as this, like, saving grace, which hasn't happened over the last decades either, and looking at like the things that she wants to do, like cutting the taxes of rich people rather than like redistributing wealth, it's just like another example of like how she's actually not interested in even using economic growth if it was possible for justice to do that, because that's not her party program. I read just this morning that something like um, in the last few weeks or months, 10 million um, Brits. Um, adult Brits plus 4 million children in the last few months or whatever, I can't remember the exact time frame, 
um, had to skip meals because they literally do not have enough money for that. So I think a lot of the critique of this growth, growth beyond everything is focused specifically on what Joe was saying, the sort of um, angle that it does, it's not distributed equally. Um, but I suppose from our perspective, there's more elements that come um, with it um, beyond that it's very unequally distributed and just makes the rich rich, which I don't know like how you can like to go back to your question actually can be somebody's ideology like I don't like beyond being really into it as an ideology it doesn't really fully make sense to me why you would espouse this yeah I guess it's so well rooted this position that GDP increase is linked to jobs and the profitability of companies is linked to development and this narrative and I mean we've been saying that she doesn't care about this but she says that the anti-growth coalition isn't interested in the normal working man um, so she's saying that it's in everybody's interest to have growth but as our project um, states and as it's well proved that doesn't distribute equally um, in her speech she says low growth means lower wages fewer opportunities and less money to spend on things that make life better does it? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that looking at looking at how, you know, growth is being growth is I mean, we're also used to hearing growth as the solution to all of these problems. So looking at how it's promoted as the solution and also in the same instance that it's being promoted as the solution in all of these ways that money, many of which are taken for granted in these discourses, in how it's talked about by people, by this trust. They, at the same time, construct the idea of degrowth, the very concept of degrowth, in particular ways that are important. And so, like, we can see, I mean, we can see, of course, here, uh, Liz Truss is talking about jobs and she's talking uh, she's talking to the very problems that you raised Elisa where you know people don't have enough food on the table people uh, like people's bare necessity needs aren't being met in many cases right and assuming that of course what they want what they need is more economic growth which will solve that problem for everyone and in the same moment they construct degrowth as the assumption that each and every person has to sort of tighten their belt. So degrowth then in these in the ways that it's talked about in these spaces. Um, and, you know, Bill Gates recently sort of made a lot of very, very high pu publicity statements um, saying the same thing, saying that, you know, we can't ask people to, you know, have less nice lives. We can't ask people to use less. We can't ask people to eat less, that's not going to solve it. And he very much constructed it as this problem of individual responsibility and individual action, right? And so even as growth is, you know, understood to be the responsibility of governments, degrowth is this idea that, you know, in this, you know, in the ways that it's being talked about in these spaces, that individual people are going to just accept less and, you know, stop, you know, stop eating as much, you know, cut out meals or whatever it may be in order in, you know, the name of global justice in the name of all of these things. Right. And so I think it's equally important to sort of think about how they're talking about growth and how they also sort of construct who they're who they're talking against in those moments. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, but I think like what you're saying is like so important, but it, 
because I mean people are already tightening their belts right because they can't actually afford anything and so like thinking about like okay anti-growth in a system set up for economic growth yes is terrible for people because we're not set up in a way that our like our economic system and our societal standards right now are aligned on growth right and therefore I mean that's exactly the problem that when then growth doesn't happen and then yes wages are cut or you know wealth isn't looked at in a way that like would foster redistribution or uh, adhere to justice principles even like just like fundamental like you know principles of like well if if you work a job then you should actually like have enough money to like buy food for the table right and so like the failures of growth in an, in a system based on economic growth are terrible which i guess is why then degrowth and postgrowth looks at the systemic parts where it's not about the like the individual i mean in parts it is about cutting back in ways that you know adhere to a system of like okay overconsumption and blah blah, blah. but i mean that's not the focus in in this context right where the focus is then of like well how do we then like restructure systems that are not set up for economic growth but detached from growth and the ideals of growth like modernity which are also often very much rooted in colonialism and um, yeah and like reconstruct a system where actually growth isn't the necessity to like basic needs actually like that's what we're talking about right Yeah, I think it's not just basic needs. I think through that, the way she talks about like less money to spend on things that might make life better. Of course, there's the element that basic needs currently aren't met, but there's also a particular kind of conception of what a good life is. And I suppose that good life is a quite materialist understanding, which to some degree, thinking of the global south and like everyone who's currently suffering so much in the UK because of these atrocious um, policies make sense, but really there is a dimension of um, what, like, what makes you happy is buying more and more things. And I think post-growth, and I think this is maybe the strongest, most convincing argument one can make, is by starting to ask people what makes you happy. And most people will not say, and this is backed up with research, quite a lot of research, that more money necessarily will always make them happy. Like. It's the, what's this paradox called again? Easterlin paradox. <laughs> um, that there is a point at which um, more income does not make you happy anymore. There's, there's a lot of discussion about that too, I suppose. But the general idea is to think about what actually makes a good life and which other values can structure our economic activity if it's not just about profit that is then so unequally um, distributed. And I think... Um, thinking about happiness and diverse meanings of happiness, which most people would probably say would be family and nature and friends and having good connections, doing nice things in their lives um, is actually at the heart of. And I think in a lot of places that kind of shift has already happened. I think um, what is saying Canada, they've been thinking about it in Bhutan. This has been a thing for a very long time to think about um, happiness as the goal of public policy as well. Mm, yeah, that's exactly what I've read in that statement where she says to spend on things that make life better and how much of that relates to your perspective and it's quite a philosophical question about what is a good life what's a virtuous life what are your needs etc um, obviously that's accompanied by if you are going to we are measuring the well-being of our economy through GDP but one of the challenges that comes up in when you move away from that is how do you measure well-being um how can you measure people's happiness and yeah 
how can you? <laughs> if I if I may, I think part of it is that which measurements to use should be a question for public debate. I think part of it is seeing if you don't have GDP, what other things could measure the health if you want to go back. So maybe that's not the right metaphor. The the well the this the state of our, of the economy if you do not use it, and it could be a public debate which values. Um, matter to us instead of just imposing certain matrices like um, was that human humane human development index, index yeah. these things right it's imposing it could be a democratic process and then different governments or whoever could have slightly different interpretations right it could just be a, a question for public debate what kind of um, like in a citizen assembly yeah for example Yeah, but I think it's also, I mean, it's also important to sort of look at how, you know, GDP is this sort of one thing that we organize ourselves around and that is like built into it is a sort of a theory of social change, right? We have GDP and all of these things that Liz Truss talks about are going to get better. You know, you're going to have a job, you're going to have more of everything, right? But I think, and I think that there's a danger in sort of organizing around any one other sort of measure of the same kind of like theory of social change, that if we can measure these things in this way, this is going to translate into human well-being. So I think that in trying to get away from GDP, get away from growth, We need to think not in terms of replacing it by one indicator or by one thing, but in terms of like a very sort of diverse array of approaches, of policy, of organizing ourselves, of building our different infrastructures in ways that are sort of in situated ways, in ways that fit those communities, the things that are promoting well-being and human flourishing in those communities rather than on a secondary scale through through the measure of a particular set of indicators. Yeah, specifically to discourage what happens all the time now, I guess, with GDP is that you're able to categorize and rank countries next to each other. Um, there was a, a stat the other day from the investment monitor that um, Germany has the highest growth rate of 32.2%, followed by Spain, 25, France, 23, and Italy, 16. Like this idea that you could then say, okay, Germany, for example, is the happiest place If you're using different metrics that are locally based, or as you say, not using metrics at all, then it discourages this like race and categorization that is so part of growth. Yeah, I mean, I think it also just like opens up, and this is, I think, I mean, generally in the degrowth, postgrowth, like discourse, quite important, right? The the aspects of like global north, global south, like who has to degrow, like who, where, what. And often I think sometimes there's not enough courage in that discourse to then also think about like the internal countries where like, you know, who actually has benefited historically of growth, for example, in a country like the UK that's heavily relied on growth and has improved a lot and like globally, but then not everybody and not all communities historically in the UK would have profited from growth Uh, as equally and so like you know thinking I guess also about that then when we think about measurements which in some ways I think uh, depending on who you're talking to you will have to need some measurements whilst also these types of measurements can also uphold very much the capitalist like mindset of having to measure everything Um, you know and so I think these measurements then will have to also take into account that different communities have different cultural historical context that are super hard to take into these like measurement contexts. I think this like democratic and like 
finding new ways of also like having bottom up solutions around like what what a community mean like what does it mean for communities to thrive on their own terms whilst adhering to certain principles around you know not overconsumption blah 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 so this like rethinking of what we actually adhere to is super difficult but is this something that we should be facing right i think what you were kind of alluding to as well is this idea that both Sophia and Joe, um, that below the sort of discourse of growth as good, there is an idea of progress as good. So if we have various um, indexes and ways of measurement, etc., to use that to track progress. And I think like below, I think maybe the idea of progress is even harder to get rid of out of our systems, out of our ways of thinking beyond just a strict focus on economic growth and GDP, where like there's the criticisms that are like slowly really begin, beginning to be quite, you know, known or popular within populations. Um, so I think that idea of progress and tracking that progress is even harder mm. um, to get rid of. And so I think if you use it, it's worth thinking very carefully about how and in which circumstances. Because like, for example, the other thing would be that we haven't fully broached in this conversation is the environmental dimension of post-growth, degrowth, which is almost like a big impulse of why, um, I suppose, we think that a reduction of economic activity to some extent is necessary or desirable. And I mean, for example, it might be worth questioning to which extent we need to measure, um, you know, reduction of CO2 emissions. Obviously, it's again super political how and in which circumstances um to do that but it's i suppose a key question and concern i just want to pick up on what you were saying about progress which i think is super important and central to our project that yeah the idea that progress is this linear thing that you can move through like stages on a measuring ruler or something as opposed to how post growth thinking or the way that we're approaching um the question of the future as this thing that has multiple pathways and is much more messy and like hasn't got a clear way to go forwards to achieve goodness or whatever. Um, in relation to the second point, I just I want to throw something out which often comes up with my friends when I'm talking about post growth, which is like for example, if you have a country that was exploited for its resources. Um, and other countries have benefited from that. And now that country would be considered underdeveloped or sort of behind. How do you then tell that country not to grow? And which is some like the criticism that always comes up for me and I'm never quite sure how to answer it. The point is not to tell them. Like, I mean, that's a very colonial mindset, I think, that um, that Europeans are now able to tell another country yet again what they should do i think the point i mean i think there's like there's an array of like uh, problems that come up in one way that colonization has installed so much of pro like progress and modernity values in various regions across the world that there's a certain like yes they also want to adhere and do what we have done which makes sense because that's literally what we told them to do Whilst also I think we, like we do have to understand that like they will not be able to completely copy what we have done because where are they going to impoverish even more countries like so this like chain of impoverishment continues but they will like not everybody has like is able to do what Europe has done for 500 years now and so I think a lot of those countries whilst already suffering the worst 
consequences of climate change right now very much are like know that they cannot do that and so actually like i think post growth often fits better than degrowth i think in those contexts but the idea that they don't have to there's a certain growth that that certain regions countries and communities uh, will have to do to meet certain what we talked about earlier basic needs but then also like thriving i mean not everybody should just be scratching by right but at the same time the exploitative nature of what that means will have to be different first of all because it's not materially possible to do the same as europe has done in the us but also i think just because there are in many regions across the world that are not that have not historically benefited of growth already alternatives and continue alternatives to be practiced that are detached from growth and maybe this ideology of exploitation that's linked to growth for us. You know, there's something different of growing materiality or thinking about materiality that impacts people's lives. Also, for example, an adaptation to climate change that we have induced, but I don't think like anybody should be criticizing that from our perspective. Like, I think that's a survival technique that we are actually not confronted with right now. I think the the key thing to say really is that degrowth as an ideology is a critique of Western modes of living and doing the economy, right? So even to apply it to countries in the global south is kind of inappropriate. And like, as you said, post-growth might be more appropriate or something like a-growth, which is a different approach, which basically, again, kind of goes back to what values do you want to pursue in 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 pursuing economic activity like beyond just like increasing wealth and profit what kind of values and things should an economic system deliver Um, and I think in that it it is kind of conjoining it and obviously different places countries um, will have different answers um, yeah I mean just sort of picking up on Joe's point or just what you immediately said but the point is not to tell them to Mm -hmm. in the first place right but that also like yes absolutely and I think that's central is that obviously that what is the target of this is mostly happening in the global north right but of course you know global north global south these terms also sort of have been developed very much to talk about the sort of inequality that exists within countries and within different places, right? Because, because these aren't, because it's not bound by national boundaries in such, in such important ways, right? And so sort of even thinking within these sort of terms of like, these countries will tell these countries what to do, I think really obscures some, like a big part of the problem with like, the way that sort of capital is organized in transnational corporations and tra- transnational like structures of power and inequality, of course, that go across the actual global north and the global south, but also just like sort of how how we can think about how we can think about addressing these issues and how we can think about like organizing around these. I think involves sort of thinking outside of these sort of like traditional sort of boundaries of like one country telling another what to do or being yeah i mean i don't know i think that's what i meant earlier was like this like we're shying away from certain conversations around this because i do think there's a place i mean looking at for example like bolsonaro or something like Mm -hmm. i I do think like we should be able to critique his actions and behavior right like despite me being a white european i do think there's like like we but at the same time, I think that goes then back to like whose wealth hoarding 
across geographies or like across boundaries and like what you're saying of like companies and also certain governments or s certain other individuals regardless of where they're coming from I think these these people in power we sh we certainly should be critiquing them and calling for a redistribution of wealth I think what I was trying to get at more is that like the the idea that you Europe gets to redefine again what we are adhering to and how it's like practically done within certain regions also doesn't work within Europe obviously and so I think like the talking around like what does post-growth then mean when like certain values maybe under pro like post-growth you know regardless of like progress and um yeah so what does that actually mean I think that's a more interesting conversation to have that crosses boundaries and borders and yeah Yeah, it's quite scary when you think about how that mentality is now playing out in some of the most important areas, for example, in urbanization in China, how you can disrupt that. Well, I mean, I know the whole point is that we don't say that you should disrupt it, but it just seems like this unstoppable course that now other places are taking. Yeah, but I mean, also, like, where does a lot of our personal growth like, comes from, right? Like, we, like, for example, the UK, like, what do they actually produce for themselves? Like, barely anything. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of, like, immaterial stuff and have some sheep on the Welsh hills and then ship that sheep across the world to import other sheep to eat them. And, I mean, you know, and, like, our societies rely so much on the production in other countries, right? And so, like, I get what you're saying of, like, how certain cities are booming. But actually, like, there is, of course, like, a, a, a boom of capital. There's a boom of, like, modernization and all of this and technology innovation in these spaces. But, like, we, the way we're talking about it right now then immediately measures their progress by that, right? Rather than looking at, like, are people actually benefiting of that? Like, is the poverty gap in those countries... It's probably getting bigger, right? And aren't they all isn't like a lot of the labor that we are relying on in those countries anyways. And so we're kind of like making critique while it's being very much like, okay, but like, please continue because we do need that shit for our societies. Right. And for, for our last like stamp to get on so that we still get the like GDP off it whilst we didn't do anything for it. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. I suppose there's a whole thing about externalizing emissions and that a lot of our, carbon footprints even if you take something like individual carbon footprints which obviously is problematic in a lot of ways but they'd be a third higher if you considered um, the emissions produced in other countries so in turn a country like China's emissions would be um, yeah much like significantly lower if they didn't produce stuff for us like this is the entanglement also of the, the world economy mm -hmm. um, Yeah, I was reading the Guardian article um, that I'll come to at the end, I think. And it was saying that the UK economy has been driven mainly by consumption rather than investment in capital like technology or skills. And that this has left productivity stagnant, generating no growth in average earnings. So it's the way that the economy they're characterizing, the way that the economy is characterized has led to this no growth for quote unquote normal people. Um, and how would a post-growth economy work? Maybe we can talk a bit more about the alternative economies or plural economies. 
<laughs> this one, no, I never, well, I never work on. Mm, I mean, there's, I guess there's like a lot of talk on like, more, like more localized production, right? Um, there's a lot more talk about like, cir like circulating money within local economies, local currencies, like thinking about like lower production that more manual labor in some ways around like agriculture and, and other things that you could then do more locally you'd have more people employed like yeah I mean there's I don't think it's like any of our topics that much around like the production side of things but I mean not relying so much on on an I think that's like one of the debates, I guess, with like the global chains of like production and consumption stuff that when Europe, at, at least like our societies where we are from here, like stop constantly taking everything from other countries, then actually maybe they could, what they produce, use for their own countries and also actually d determine what they actually want to produce on their own and for themselves, right? I think that's what we we're talking about earlier of like when we define when we stop defining what growth and production means for other countries and other workers around the world then what would they actually like choose for themselves and we like we we continue to take and we continue to place our stuff in their economies so okay then if we stop creating oil and gas fields across the world for our consumption what does it mean then in our own country to produce alternative energy and produce alternative food that we you know stop flying in like milk powder from china all the time like it, it's but it takes a lot of like heavily restructuring yeah and even i think it takes you know thinking about the very infrastructures into which the growth imperative is built and so like thinking about like you know how we organize how we live in our societies and of course so coming from the u.s obviously like if you look at the american west it's built around the very premise of driving your cars long distances and you know doing and sort of when you when people approach these kinds of issues like okay we can't drive so much in the u.s you know you're looking at a population that's like that literally my livelihood depends on me driving for an hour and a half across here and there is no public transportation basically and it's completely impossible right yeah. and so that sort of like becomes kind of a non-starter in in these ways in which the, the very growth imperative was built into the infrastructure. It's like, you know, the reason that there isn't public transportation in the first place in places like, you know, Los Angeles is that these, these infrastructures were intentionally taken apart by interests interested in selling more cars by the automotive industry. Um, so thinking about how to rebuild our societies in ways that don't make it an individual choice of like, okay, I'm going to quit working. I'm going to yeah. quit doing everything just so I can not drive my car, right? Yeah. It's not about making those kinds of choices. It's about rebuilding our communal lives, our lives together, the ways that we operate so that people can make, so that those options are easy and available and the the clear option, not yeah. some arduous request right i mean obviously this is going playing right to my interest because i'm working on urban planning and like the concept of the carbon lock-in and urban sprawl creating this dependency on technologies of growth like which amongst which we might consider roads and cars etc is something that i'm thinking about a lot and how we can reorganize space so that we don't have that dependency and there are lots of concepts that are coming out right now like the 15 minute city which we have here in Pontevedra 
which means that all of your amenities are available to you in a 15 minute radius maximum, right? Um, 15 minutes of walking and that you should have different um, modes of transport available to you that aren't just car, so walking, cycling, etc. But this is a whole another massive topic and I'm conscious (laughs) that, how long have we been speaking, Didi? Uh, 32 minutes, 33 minutes. Okay, so how do we feel? I can add something. Yeah? Sure. Um, I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of like, uh, if you want to put it like that, systemic pressures to towards growth. But I think one way beyond that is to look to end on a hopeful note, actually. And this is kind of the uh, the project of a uh, feminist geograph uh, duo of a duo of feminist economic geographers that have like as their goal to uncover actually the diversity of economic activity that already exists um beyond like that is goes to sharing but also things like stealing to community gardens to helping out your neighbor all of these are like different economic activities and in terms of time effort actually most people in the global north care work is a big one spend more time on these activities than in the formal economy Mm. and so i think it's of course it's important not to lose sight of the structural pressures which push people towards certain things to cover their financial or whatever needs but there is also a way in which these activities can provide um, inspiration and incentives for different ways of doing. And I think one way of organizing is to um, to think about how to do things in common, right? Like, I think that is one of the more inspirational approaches, even though, of course, it's fraught with issues in different ways, but to organize resources, uh, mobility, um, vegetable patches, flats in common, as co- in cooperatives, etc., as a way of being able to access things without necessarily having to own things. Like I'm thinking, if there's like libraries of things, then you do not need to buy those whatever expensive gardening tools that you use once a year, for example. I mean, that's a very easy example, but I think there's a lot of like stuff that is sort of happening through which basic needs, but also um like just things that give us happiness in some way um can be fulfilled and satisfied so i think it's important to have like both perspectives and sort of switch between both also in order to not fall completely into despair as to the mm-hmm. hardness of the of the task ahead of us self organization mm-hmm. yeah do you want to add anything otherwise i'll end with a quote Go for it. Um, it's a just something that ended the Guardian article, article by Michael Jacobs on the 10th of October. And he says, It would be truer to say that most of the public will be glad to have rising incomes, but not if they are accompanied by ecological disaster, rising inequality and declining quality of life. Of course, a sustainable, egalitarian and well-being focused economy would require a different approach altogether. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you.